Hi, this is Jason Cascarino. Welcome to the Lessons in Adolescence podcast, a production of the Remaking Middle School Initiative. You can learn about Remaking Middle School on the web at remakingmiddleschool.org. Now, here's this episode. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Adolescence podcast where we explore the many facets that impact young adolescents in the middle school years, from the adverse, to the awkward, to the awesome. I'm your host, Jason Cascarino. Today, we have part one of my conversation with Ron Berger, a longtime educator and program developer, and now senior advisor teaching and learning for EL Education. Beginning more than 30 years ago, EL Education was born out of the outward bound model of experiential learning that centers around young people and adults building strong bonds with each other and exploring and influencing the world together rather than alone, an approach to education that has particular resonance for young adolescents. What if school were more like an outward bound trip? And on an outward bound trip, it's not about any one person's success, it's about the whole team being successful. It's about the entire group making it to the top of the mountain or out onto the ocean or down the river. And your job is not just to get yourself to the top of the mountain, it's to get all of your crewmates up to the top of that mountain. In contrast, school is kind of an individual sport, right? Like everyone out for herself or himself or their self. Everyone is trying to get ahead and it's not your job to help anyone else. But what if school were a team sport instead of an individual sport? What if your job in school was to get every one of your crewmates and classmates into college or into successful academic career and you're all helping each other in that way here in part one of our conversation ron and i talk about the genesis of el education the core features of its educational programs that appeal to young adolescent learning and development like hands-on real-world group learning expeditions and student-led assessment plus examples from its partner schools on how these concepts of learning come to life. Then in part two of our conversation, we talk about EL's open source and highly rated and regarded English language arts curriculum and how it anchors experiential learning with rigorous and standards aligned content. We talk about EL's newer foray into social and emotional learning with its advisory program, Crew. And we address the state of education today how to meet the moment for young people, given the impacts of the pandemic on learning, and for teachers amid the backlashes around addressing issues of equity. Part two will be released next week. Now, here's part one of my conversation with Ron Berger. Ron, it is such an honor and a delight to have you here. Thanks for taking the time to come talk with me. Jason, thank you for inviting me. So EL education, just in all candor for our listeners, holds a very special place for me. It was a big part of my formative years in my career, and I'm just really eager to have the chance to talk about it, specifically within the context of young adolescent learning and development, where I think the EL model has a lot going for itself and a lot to contribute. Before we dive into all that, Ron, you have been a part of EL education on the order of 20 years or so. You've helped shape many aspects of the organization. And not to date you, but you were also a teacher for many years. Um, I guess two questions just to start us off. One, why is education your life's work? And two, what is it about EL education that has made it a great venue or vehicle for you for what you want to accomplish in this space? It's hard for me or at this point not to date me because 
Um, I'm almost 50 years in education now and mm-hmm. uh, was in the classroom for more than 25 years and have worked in some capacity with EL since we started 30 years ago as expeditionary learning. So it's been a really long time for me. And my passion in education is I think as a nation, we underestimate the capacity of kids to do great things. And I don't mean great things when they grow up and go into the world. I mean, great things right now when they are 11 years old or 13 years old, like they can do great things now. And I don't think we empower them and support them to do that often. Um, and it's it's a little bit strange because in, let me just say, in most of the middle schools in America, kids are treated as if they, they have to be watched every minute. They can't be trusted to do important things. And yet those same kids go home and they babysit people's children, which is the most important responsibility you could have in the world. If you're going to turn over your kids to this 13-year-old, you have to think she has incredible capacity to be wise, to be smart in emergencies, to be tender, to be supportive, to be loving, to be organized. Like You believe in her capacity. And then the next morning she goes to school and people act like we can't trust her for a moment. She needs a hall pass every second. She can't be watched. She has to be watched in her class every time. So I think there's this amazing potential in kids to do great things, which we see every time we hire a babysitter. And why are we not tapping into that in schools? And the reason that I've been allied with EL for 30 years, and there's many other organizations I respect in in the same way, is that it does more to tap into the potential of kids than we often do. I had mentioned that EL was a part of my early career. I got my start in education with New American Schools, um, you know, and today there are a number of what are referred to as venture philanthropies in education. And NAS was, I don't know if it was a precursor to those or maybe just one of the first venture philanthropies in education. It raised a whole bunch of money, $130 million, to invest in what it called break the mold school designs. And this was in the 1990s, about 10 years after A Nation at Risk, which was the seminal report that raised kind of the alarm on the state of of our schools and education system. This is a bit of a history lesson for our, our listeners, but there was a number of these whole school, comprehensive school models that NAS invested in that were meant to address all aspects of teaching and learning and schooling. And one of those was your organization. Tell us about the genesis of EL education, which started out, as you mentioned, as expeditionary learning, Outward Bound. And why was it considered a break the mold uh, school design? The original idea came from the Harvard Outward Bound Center. It was Harvard Graduate School of Education working with Outward Bound USA for this idea of what if school were more like an Outward Bound trip? And on an Outward Bound trip, it's not about any one person's success. It's about the whole team being successful. It's about the entire group making it to the top of the mountain or out onto the ocean or down the river. And your job is not just to get yourself to the top of the mountain, it's to get all of your crewmates up to the top of that mountain. In contrast, school is kind of an individual sport, right? Like everyone out for herself or himself or their self. Everyone is trying to get ahead and it's not your job to help anyone else. But what if school were a team sport instead of an individual sport? What if your job in school was to get every one of your crewmates and classmates into college or into successful academic career? And you're all helping each other in that way. And what if school were a bit more adventurous, like an Outward Bound trip? What if you were doing some more bold and interesting things? Another thing about Outward Bound is that it's dedicated to service. 
you should be serving others. What if school built in some element of service where kids were serving their communities at the same time as they were learning to be good scholars? So all of that was rolled into this original proposal, which was uh, the organization was then called Expeditionary Learning Outward Bound. We since shortened it to EL just because it was a lot to say, but we, our roots are expeditionary learning. And the idea of a, a learning expedition is really a metaphoric thematic journey into studying something deeply and doing projects and research around that topic and using that academic research to contribute in some way to the world. Let's talk about that and, and other aspects of, of EL. Well, first I should say there, there are different variations of EL now, right? You're not, not just the whole, you still have your school-based models, but you also have evolved into more called maybe differentiated service offerings. Is that correct? That's exactly right. We focused particularly on communities that were underserved. So rural or urban communities that didn't always have a history of being well-served. And uh, we still, that's still our focus. But we've gone from 10 schools to about 150 nationally. In, we're in most states. Um, and we don't own schools. We're a partner, a, a professional learning partner for schools, existing district public schools or charter public schools. But about 10 years ago, we realized if we wanted to reach more students and more teachers, we had to scale in a different way. And so we've started creating open educational resources, videos, books, documents, curriculum. And now we have an open source curriculum that's used by about half a million students. At least half of our work now, Jason, is creating open resources to support educators and students everywhere, whether or not we're directly partnered with them. Let's talk about some of these aspects in EL. You, you teed up a little bit of this. EL, I think, is just highly attuned to the learning and development of young adolescents specifically. So these are young people ages 10 to 15, anywhere between sort of fourth and ninth grade. They are in a really consequential part of their life and their learning, a period of self-discovery, building identity and agency. For EL, I am thinking about the core concept of expeditions as a start. I, I would love for you to just paint a, a, a bigger picture for our audience of what that expedition is, is like. And, and maybe you can go from there and some other aspects that are tied to the young adolescent learning and development. I just have to say I have a personal love and respect for kids of that age. I taught kids of that age for more than 20 years. So uh, it's, it's like when I think about untapped potential of kids to do great things, that age, though, that sort of idealism of, of the onset of adolescence is just so powerful, I think. And you're right. It's a very special time in life, as all the listeners know where kids start seeing themselves as separate from their parents, where they start seeing themselves as an agent in the world, where they start trying to distance themselves from all the things that were brought up and start questioning what's right in the world, what's fair, and that sense of fairness and rightness and what's just and what's unjust becomes very sharp at that age. So learning expeditions are deep studies and they're often centered on are things right and just in the world? And if not, what can we do about it? So it taps into that idealism in students. I can give examples from an ecological or scientific point of view. Learning expeditions often bring kids out to test the water and the air and the soil in their city, in their rural community to make sure it's safe and okay and protect the lives of people in their community. And kids' sense of environmental injustice is very sharp at that age. In a historical sense, it brings kids out into the community to interview people who are underrecognized former veterans of foreign war, former civil rights heroes, 
people that have worked to serve their communities, but they're unsung heroes in their community. Again, it, it brings up kids developing sense of moral righteousness of why were these heroes in our community who've been doing good not recognized? How can we tell their stories? How can we get their oral histories? How can we celebrate them in our community? How can we work for social justice in our community, racial justice in our community, environmental justice? So I think it's particularly tuned to, to the, the blossoming sense of, for in, in kids of that age, of how do we make the world better? Because it doesn't seem fair to me right now. And if I'm a teacher listening in, uh, how does where does where do these expeditions fit? Is it part of my curriculum? Is it is it interdisciplinary? Am I working with teams of teachers to do this as a group? How, how does that work embedded within the school? So at a middle school level, it, it's very often these learning expeditions are interdisciplinary, but they're led more by one discipline. So it may be that the science teacher leads an expedition uh, about something in the, the lived environment, the physical environment that people are in that has kids learn about sampling, about chemistry, about physics in their environment. Or it may be that the history teacher leads it. And it's, it's about something historical, a big historical theme that's already in the standards, in the curriculum, but they can connect to something local. Or maybe the English teacher or the mathematics teacher leads it in some way. It's a data science-based one, or it's a literature-based one. Most cases, you would try to bring in people from your grade level team to support you in that work. So if, if the English teacher is leading it, or the social studies teacher is leading it, but there's a lot of data science involved because you're collecting a lot of quantitative and qualitative data, Perhaps you bring in the mathematics teacher or the science teacher or, or the technology teacher to help kids learn new software, learn how to manipulate data, learn how to do data analysis. If the science teacher is creating a scientific report about quality of air or the quality of water in people's wells in your rural town, the science teacher may be the lead, but the report that those kids prepare for their community is a piece of writing. It's English work. It's, it's producing a formal scientific report that hopefully the English teacher will help kids shepherd through the quality of their scientific writing, learn how to write like scientists, learn how to critique each other's work. But sometimes learning expeditions, Jason, just live in one, one class. If it's too hard to coordinate that, sometimes the English teacher, the science teacher, the mathematics teacher just decides I'm taking off with this one. <laughs> this is going to be a deep study this year. And another piece of that I love about expeditions is the 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 idea of relevance doing something in in school that has an academic base but has a high degree of relevance to the world to their environment to their social relationships all those things that 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 is another developmental feature of this age uh it, clamoring for that relevance absolutely and having something that feels meaningful comes right at the right time when they're questioning what's the meaning of school when they're in second grade, they might not be questioning it. But when they're in seventh grade, they're thinking, why am I here anyway? And if the work they're doing is really connected to the real world in a way that they feel like we could contribute, it changes everything. I mean, I can use an example, uh, King Middle School, which is one of the very first schools we worked with when we started in 1993. Uh, it's a regular public middle school in Portland, Maine, but it serves an unusual group of students. Most of the students are low income and more than a third of the students are foreign born refugees. So there's more than 30 languages spoken by the kids in the school. They come from Africa, from, from Eastern Europe, from Central America, from South America. And sometimes they come in with no English at all. And so this school is a blending of cultures. And 
those kids are unified by a sense of purpose beyond themselves. So King did a really beautiful, but no one knows who they are. And so teams of kids were sent out to interview them to create biographies of them to celebrate them. And, and maybe that team would have one kid from, from an African nation, one kid from Central America, two kids that were that grew up in Maine, all working together. But the mission is not about them. It's about more than them. It's about telling the story of a hero that no one knows about. And it's humbling and it's purposeful. Like, how can you not think that has real meaning? That you have a really important mission in the world and you better do it well and you better get it right. Another developmental feature that we often talk a lot about with young adolescents is agency. Uh, you wrote a book, actually you've written a few, uh, but the one that I'm thinking of now is the Leaders of Their Own Learning, Transforming Schools Through Student-Engaged Assessment, which you wrote with Leah Rugen and Libby Woodfin. And in that book, you make the case and you provide strategies for what you call student-engaged assessment. And here again, you're kind of appealing to that developmental need for agency, students owning their own learning, owning their academic growth. Tell us a little bit about student-engaged assessment. Well, student-engaged assessment is already taking place for all of us when our kids or our grandkids or our students are engaged in outside-of-school things, right? So when they're on a soccer team, when they're in an orchestra, when they take ballet, they're constantly assessing, what am I good at? What am I not good at? What do I need to work on? They're always discussing it with their peers. If you interview your own children, like what are your strengths in soccer or in ballet or in orchestra? What are your weaknesses? They will be able to analyze exactly where those things are because they really are invested in building on them. We don't tap into that energy in school often. In school, assessment is often something done to kids rather than something that they own and that they're committed to using to get better. And so all this is doing is taking that idea that students can be put in charge of thinking about how do I get better by sharing their data with them when on assessments, by having them analyze their work and their, their achievements, by having them present their work formally. So it means that parent conferences are led by students who are presenting a portfolio of their work, saying, here are my strengths in mathematics, here are my struggles, here are my goals, here's what I'm working on, here are my strengths as an English student, here are the, here's the evidence of my strengths, here's evidence of what I'm struggling with, here's where my growth areas are. That ownership changes everything because it puts them as the leader of their progress, like they own their destiny here. It's not something done to them. So too often, I think schools use assessment like going to your annual checkup where your doctor tells you if you're healthy or not. That's very different than your child going to their soccer practice every day and always thinking about how do I get better at soccer. That was Ron Berger, Senior Advisor Teaching and Learning for EL Education. You can follow EL Education online at eleducation.org or on Twitter and Instagram at EL Education and Facebook at EL Education Inc. You can also follow Ron on Twitter at RonBurgerEL. Remember to look out for part two of my conversation with Ron next week on the Lessons in Adolescence podcast, where we feature conversations with researchers, practitioners, program developers, and advocates for young adolescents in the middle school years. Recently, I interviewed Johari Harris, Assistant Professor of Educational Psychology at Kennesaw State University. Johari is also the Director of Educating for Democracy, an initiative housed at the University of Virginia designed to combine the science of adolescent learning and development with the teaching of critical histories, 
and supporting justice-oriented civic engagement, important efforts for young adolescents who are thinking more and more about issues of race and racism and how to address them. I really want to make the distinction between race and racism because I I think particularly today, too often when people hear the word race, they think about racism and they're two very different things. And we can, research keeps telling us, practice keeps telling us, like if you talk to a middle schooler, you know they're thinking about it. They're thinking about race and what it means to them. They're thinking about racism and what it means to them and their role in it. So rather than ignoring it and, and shying away from these conversations, how can we do it in a supportive context? You can listen to both parts of my conversation with Jahari wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for joining the Lessons in Adolescence podcast, a production of Remaking Middle School, an initiative that seeks to transform the learning and development experience for young adolescents in the middle school years. Remaking Middle School brings together good educational practice in school and out of school with the latest developmental science. You can learn about Remaking Middle School or find more resources about the topics of this podcast on the web at remakingmiddleschool.org. The Lessons in Adolescence podcast is produced by Abby Gillespie and me, Jason Cascarino. Editing by Paige Waterhouse. You can listen to or download each episode at the Remaking Middle School website, on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>